Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. In 2020, over 18 million students applied to go to college and 17.7 million of those students applied for financial aid. Applying for financial aid can be a daunting and emotional process for students and families. In my research for this episode, I learned that in 2020, the number of submitted applications for the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, fell by 50,000 applicants. Guiding students and their families along that journey is a global community of financial aid directors and counselors who are committed to simplifying the complexities and easing the pathway to graduation for the next generation. This episode is dedicated to these unsung heroes, these keepers of all those forms, and even some of the memories, those makers of dreams. With their focus ever on the next generation, pursuing higher education and newfound purpose, their work is seldom heralded. And while the statistics and metrics are all too easily cited, we rarely hear the stories behind the numbers, nor do we get to meet the people whose lives have been changed forever by the work of a financial aid counselor like David Carnivale. In this episode, I bring two of those stories to light. Told nearly 20 years later, this story of change is a reunion between a young student and the counselor who helped him find his path to independence and eventually graduation. Thank you to David and Brian for joining the podcast and trusting this platform to echo their stories while championing the next generation of change makers. This conversation could go in several different directions, I think. Well, Brian, we'll welcome you back to the podcast because you've been on the podcast before. Um, and so I'll have you introduce yourself first and then David, welcome you to the podcast and then have you introduce yourself and then we'll take it from there. So Brian, do you want to start off as a return guest to the podcast? Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am Brian Kirst. Um, I had an episode with Bill in the very early time of this podcast. I am Brian, uh, Bill's brother. And um, I, to kind of connect it to your other guest, I know David very well through the journey of my college years. Um, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had an education. So I'm very happy to be here and to honor David on your podcast. Thank you. And David, tell the listeners who you are. Hi, uh, I am so thrilled to be here and um, especially to be here with Brian. Um, my name is David Carnavalli and I have been in college enrollment and financial aid for quite a while. And that's how I met Brian. Um, as a little baby 19 year old way back when um and we've kept in contact throughout the years and so i'm excited to share our journey as we go through this thank you thank you both for for joining i'm i'm really excited to sort of share this story and echo this story 
And Brian, I'd like to start off with something you had mentioned right before we started recording. It's been 20 years since you and David uh, met. And I'm curious. 20 years next year. Yeah. yeah um, I'm curious as you, you know, we're going to obviously unravel this story about how your two paths crossed. But I'm curious, like what it's like today looking back on um, who you were at 19 um, and how much, I mean, Obviously, a lot has changed since you were 19. But when you reflect back on what we're going to talk about today, uh, what, are the, what are the kind of the feelings and sentiments that you're coming into this discussion with? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel it's kind of a, a blur. It's unrecognizable to me. Um, so much has happened in the past you know, 20 years that um, I do often look back to say, God, those Marymount College years were absolutely foundational for all of the work that I have done up to this point. And it's kind of like a go back through the photo album kind of moment. I I, I try to look, remember like, it's kind of the roots where I, I kind of learned how to take care of myself, how to, you know, navigate the world on a very kind of uh, hit the ground running type of moment. So it can be hard sometimes to go back, but I, that's why I really want to do it with David because there's a lot of pieces he may be able to fill in that I completely blocked out that because it was so much all at once. And so it's exciting too. It's yeah. unrecognizable and very exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and David, before we kind of get into the the story, right, the the, the crux of, of what Brian you're referring to, I'm curious, David, it's obviously been almost two decades. You're still obviously in this line of work. You've helped a lot of young people in their journeys. How are you coming to today's discussion? How are you feeling? Oh, how am I feeling? Um, I prepared myself that at some point I was probably going to cry. Um, so I'll just put that out there right now. Um, <clears throat> there are you know, I have been doing this for over 20 years and you're always excited when your students cross the graduation stage. Um, but very few students stay with you and very few students do get the, the joy of being able to see kind of their journey. And, and even if it's from a voyeur side of, of, you know, Facebook and things like that, you know, um, when Brian sent me pictures of his wedding and then pictures of his house, and those are the things where I, I just I look back and I think, God, that was twenty years ago, but it, it just seems like it was yesterday. And you know, I have a handful of students who still I, I'm in communication with, and I still am able to celebrate their accomplishments with them. And and those are really kind of my special, really special students. And I was fairly young when Brian and I met as well, that was my, my first uh, position as a director, kind of leading my own office. Um, and I learned a lot in those, you know, five or six years that I was at Marymount. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. And certainly I will say this, this is a place where all emotions are welcome. Um, Brian and I have both gotten emotional on this podcast um, in the telling of our own sort of ancestral stories. So certainly um, that is all welcome here. So tears are welcome. Um, and, you know, it's part of the healing, honestly, which I think this story is very much about. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and and Brian, I'd like to, I'd like us to maybe kind of un, unpack what you remember 
um, about uh, being that freshman, right? You were a freshman in college at Marymount College in uh, Palos Verdes, California, um, which I understand recently or just this past year, it closed. Is that is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it closed. Oh, so sad. Um, to, to, for those not familiar with the college, it was um, at the at the point Brian was there and I was there. It was a two year private college uh, working on your associate's degree, but more importantly, working on transfer to your first choice university um, that you may not have been able to get into right out of high school. And this kind of gave you a chance to reset your academic record. Yeah, absolutely. And and those programs are pivotal, I think, for so many people because, you know, I think one of the things, and we'll talk about this shortly, but like the maturity piece of it, right? A lot of young people, um, you know, you set your heart on that that number one school and for many reasons, financial, emotional, personal, maturity-wise, right? It doesn't work out. But I love that these these schools like Marymount became that place where people could become their adult self and understand sort of who they are and, and how they see the world and then pursue that dream even further. So I appreciate you, you know, grounding us in that, David. Brian, tell take us take us back a little bit. Like, you know, you graduate high school, you um, head off to California from the East Coast. And um, what was your freshman year like? How was it? And then tell us at what point what changed and what brought David into your life? Yeah, I, um, it was, I remember the flight to Long Beach. And I remember when the plane touched down, I remember thinking, this is it. This is for me to be myself. I'm going to, ex- I'm, I'm going to be me. I'm not going to be in the closet anymore. I'm just going to be me. Right. And it was amazing. Like Marymount College, if anybody could look it up on Google, it's amazing on maps, but it's, you know, top of the peninsula for Palos Verdes. You've got a view of Catalina every morning that's either up above the clouds or, you know, just completely clear. Palm tree swaying. Weather was amazing. Like I had just felt so at home. I felt so amazingly grounded because we've traveled all around the world, Bill and I and our family. So we, I've always wanted to be in LA. That was my thing. And so got rejected from like every college I applied to. I had, you know, didn't know what I was going to do. When I got to Marymount, it was like an opportunity for me to really build up you know, skills, who I was, find out who I was, make friends. Everybody accepted me with open arms. There was no question. It was like, sometimes I had to pinch myself because I was like, is this a real place? Like people, I say I'm gay and people are like, and, and I, I, I'm, I was expecting a fight. Mm -hmm. I was expecting, let me try to fight my way through to be myself and everything from residential life to counseling services to, you know, financial aid. Everybody was like, hey, Brian, how are you doing? Great. You're doing awesome. Everybody was so family oriented. Everything with school made it easier. You know, how how I studied, how I hung out with people. I was really finding out who I was. So it was like a, a huge bread maker of like, you know, this moment in time where I was like, this is what it feels like to be me and be happy. And I don't know if you want me to keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sometimes just go right yes. really quickly through the story. So, no, so. I, I appreciate the pause in that because I think it's important to help people who are listening ground it in the amount of joy that you were experiencing. Um, and I remember yeah. visiting you on that beautiful campus that first year you were there. And it was so great to see you in this 
this light, right? Like you said, the bread maker is a great way, a great analogy because it takes time and it takes attention and it takes mm -hmm. uh, care. And you had that in that community. Right. Um, and then some things changed, right? I think, did you remind me of the time on here? You finished your freshman year, you came back to, you know, home family uh, for the summer and then things yeah. changed a little bit. Yeah. Uh, 2004, uh, it was June. It was summertime. Um, I remember it because the cicadas had their 17 year annual release in DC. That's so. right. <laughs> How very classic of a image. Um, so I came back to DC and, um, I wasn't, I was like, okay, that's, that's first year done. going to go through summer, you know, you know, second year is going to come. And, and for my parents had a decision to make for their own decisions, which was, you know, we don't want to fund this school anymore because of, you know, you coming out. And so it was their decision and we hit an impasse and I had to, you know, I was, I, I was so, I remember the fear of just when I, when I realized that this was happening, I, I think every single bit of that happiness and everything was, it just, I just went into protection mode. I don't even know where it came from. I mean, sometimes I tell this story and people are like, you at 19, like you were strategizing how to save your cut. Like, how does, how do you even do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I knew that I needed Los Angeles. I knew I needed my friends. I needed that community. Otherwise I wasn't going to be able to continue being happy and being myself and growing. And so I um, immediately kicked into how do I get back was the first set. Like, how, how am I going to get physically back? Thank God I was, you know, dating somebody at the time who offered to pay for my flight and take me back. So he came to DC, picked me up and brought me back. But before that decision, I reached out to David at Marymount. Um, I didn't even really know what to do. I literally was just like, I don't even remember how I contacted him. I think I called and I was like, I'm freaking out. Like I didn't even leave. I, I wasn't like, hi, this is so and so. No, I was like, David, this is DEFCON 4. We are five. We've got to get this going. I can't stay here. If I stay here, I'll die. I can't do it. Like I was super dramatic, but I wanted to get... <laughs> I'll own it. I was, it was a little bit of like, uh, you know, rebel without a cause or whatever, like something really dramatic. Um, but I was serious. I really, I think he could hear it in my voice. I was like this, if I don't complete this journey, I will regret it for the rest of my life. Like it was powerhouse need to get back, need to finish. And I wasn't even really thinking about at that point, the education, I knew that that was a priority, but I was thinking about getting back to a place of safety. Mm. Where was I going to feel safe? Where was I going to be able to learn and grow? And and I, I, the education piece was there. I knew I had to get there. I just needed David's help to be able to do it. And I think we did phones and faxes. We were faxing. I was faxing paperwork in Tunla, this apartment in DC that my parents owned that I was staying at on a fax machine that we had to like, I had, I could, I don't even know how it worked. I don't even know if you received it. Like I was like freaking out trying to think. And then what happens is you go through that phase of how am I going to connect with the financial aid? How am I going to get it? And then you're like, how the heck am I going to afford this? Then that sets in. 
And it's just wall after wall of like, what, what, what am I getting up against? There's things I couldn't even see Mm -hmm. that were coming down the pike, you know? And it was David that was like, let's take this one step at a time. And I was like, thank Jesus that I I had somebody. So I'm curious, David, like, again, you may or may not remember getting said call but you certainly remember being a young director in the financial aid office. As you mentioned, it was kind of your first director role in that. You probably got maybe not exact calls like that, but you had gotten calls like that. Do you remember what it was like or, you know, when you get a call from a student like that who's who's saying essentially, I've never done this before. I may be going out on my own and, and truly forging um, on my own here. Um, how do I do this? Do you remember uh, that call or calls like that? I, I still get them. So yes, um, it, it's when you've made a connection with a student and you're seeing them thrive, and then you get those calls, and it's just it. It's really heartbreaking, and you want to do everything you can. And there were obstacles. Um, yeah. Part of what we left out is this is a very small Catholic college. Yeah, it's a little little detail. <laughs> a little yes. detail in there. Um, <clears throat> but what I loved about the college was that, you know, we had, ju- I think it was at that point just around 600 students. So it wasn't that large at all. Um, I worked with some amazing people. And <clears throat> the president of the college at the time, um, he made it very well known to folks on campus that he was very proud to be the president of the Catholic college where students could explore their faith, whatever that faith was, but that he could also support a gay straight Alliance. He mm-hmm. could also support some of these other things that you don't typically um, see as being kind of the Catholic values. So I never felt like, you know, there was an issue for my students as advisor of the Gay Straight Alliance, Mm -hmm. to be out on campus, um, for myself as an administrator to be out on campus. Um, And it also came down to a lot of the times um, a gay student was having problems or needed someone to talk to, and there was this kind of thought on campus of, even though it may not be a financial aid issue or an enrollment issue, um, go talk to the gay guy. He'll be able to help you out. right. He'll give you someone to relate to. Go talk to the gay guy. <laughs> so, the Velvet Mafia, as we say. <laughs> exactly. So my office, you know, quickly became, you know, I, I had the Gay Straight Alliance popping in throughout the day, almost every day. Mm-hmm. And I will say the Gay Straight Alliance was all of like five students. I think even by the time Brian was there, it was less. Um, right. And it was typically one LGBTQ kid and like three girls mm-hmm. um, who were su- super right. supportive. So it wasn't like we were talking about a huge portion of campus. Um, and that I think that's why, you know, I call them the kids. They, they meant so much to me yeah. because they were, they were doing something they couldn't do elsewhere. Yeah. And so then to get those calls, and, and it didn't happen that often at Marymount, but to get those calls of this is being ripped away from me. What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that I had the opportunity to be able to talk to, to my VP, to be able to, to kind of run this through and say, okay, here's what we can do, but we're dealing with two sets of rules. We're dealing with, you know, what we can do on the campus level. Mm-hmm. And then we're dealing with a whole nother set of federal and state regulations. Right. 
and what the burden of proof is for how can I help someone like Brian, who was calling and saying, my dad's cut me off from everything. Right. <clears throat> um, and there's, you know, there's a certain burden of proof. So, you know, the documentation, like you said, you were faxing stuff to us and, you know, we were trying to figure out, okay, with this stuff, what, you know, <laughs> have we met the burden of proof to essentially make Brian an independent student because he's no longer being supported by his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. that came with some consequences. Um, I think Brian, we've talked about it later, like much later, like maybe just a year or two ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that was important to me because I never wanted him to know the struggles I was going through on campus had nothing to do with his success. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want him to know that those were the things that went on. Right. Um, so it's heartbreaking. And and you always hope that, you know, you can, again, you get them to the graduation stage and you get them at Marymount, you get them to transfer to their first choice. Um, and we did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and and I, I wanted to go... I want it to be said, like, this is hero's work. Like, this is, I mean, the ability to work in a space where you play a significant role in helping people achieve their dreams. And, and you know, it's, it's not, we can't forget what's happening right now in the world, too, right? And, you know, I heard, I heard a, a stat the other day in a news report that said, Alarmingly, if you add it all up, women's rights has been has been reversed almost 300 years, depending on how you look at things. And many of the rights that we as LGBTQ people have known are being reversed as well. And I think I think very, you know, deliberately about places like college campuses because they are truly these bastions of dream making, right? It's learning, it's growing, like you said, Brian. It's it's a place where people can discover and try and speak and disagree, but commit and move forward. And and I think to myself that increasingly roles like yours, David, not only just from like a, hey, how do we figure this out for you, right? In burden of proof and state rules and legis- legislation, but also as a as an advisor, as like a hey, I see you, kid. Like I see you. Um, I believe you. I see you, and I see your potential. So let's start there, and then and then and then work around all the regulations and all the burdens of proof. And because this is this is a complex part of I don't want to say business, but it is right. I mean, there's. It's it's evolving all the time, and and I'm curious, David, in your you know in your span of two decades, you know I only know a little bit about FAFSA and a little bit about policy, primarily because years ago when I when I worked um, uh, at IBM and even before that when I was in grad school, I got on a pro bono project, which was intentionally trying to help them redesign the FAFSA application, because one of the things that was so challenging is it was immediately intimidating to students and family. And so you would get like three blocks in and then you'd be like, well, I don't have that information readily available. I don't know what they mean. And then 
the drop-off rates of the FAFSA would just tank. And, and so you had, you know, everybody starting it and then 75% of the people wouldn't finish it. And we kept saying, this is a door that keeps closing on these young people and these families who this could be life changing for them. And they're just finishing the application or not finishing it rather because of all the barriers that we're putting in their way, design wise and process wise. And the piece that when we did our interviews and our stakeholder interviews, one of the things that we took away from it, and I'm sure you can relate to this, David, was every single person said, I got this far into it and then I just wanted to talk to someone. And they couldn't or they or they didn't have someone um, or, or the parents didn't know what questions to ask, you know, and and I think about how many dreams were this close to getting launched and didn't. And so. I'd love your thoughts on that. I mean, you've seen it change over the years. Colleges have changed. We've been through the pandemic. So much has changed. Like, we're certainly not faxing anything anymore. I mean, maybe you do. Do you receive faxes? I don't know. I have to tell you, I, I debate with my team all the time because we do have a fax machine. Uh, the advantage is it's, it's, you know, it really is a paperless fax machine. And so right. it goes straight into our imaging system. But sure. yeah, I'm like, who faxes? Who, who actually has another fax machine to use? That's... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the FAFSA has been such a roadblock to so many students. The good news is not this coming up year, uh, but next year, um, the federal government has significantly reduced the FAFSA. It's going to be about 36 questions. Mm -hmm. A lot of data is going to be preloaded. Um, I think there's going to be some problems, but it's a huge win from the 108 questions right now. Yeah, 108. Uh, um, and it's much oh easier. To, yeah. It's much easier to tell a student now or you know, in the future, this is what you're going to qualify for, and this is how we'd make that determination versus, well, there's 108 questions and everyone plays a factor into what we can give you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, it's making huge strides, and you know, especially this one, surprisingly, um, <clears throat> I believe it was Republican uh, congressmen and senators who proposed the simplified FAFSA, mm. um, <clears throat> which was a huge surprise. Um, so we'll see. And, and it, the initial outlook is that it does help more students on the lower end of the socioeconomic yeah. Uh, yeah. bands. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious, Brian, like, do you, your experience of like, obviously filling stuff out and then um, faxing stuff in and then having phone calls and figuring out what the deliberation of this was. Um, did you, and, and I'm asking this question as a brother because I didn't, obviously you and I have had conversations about this and I think it's worth sharing with, you know, listeners, you and I have, have since revisited this time as well, because truth be told, you reached out to me and said, Hey, um, I need help making ends meet. And, um, you know, for those that are listening or families that have been in the situation, it's really tough because I look back on it and um, I regret, I regret how I didn't show up for you as an older brother. And that, you know, that question of like loyalties and families and all that, we can set that aside. But do you remember what it was like for you when you realized, hey, this is actually going to happen? Like something, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to benefit from either grants or loans. Um, what was that first, you know, um, realization like? I what so the moment where I like stopped remembering and then started to remember was like the application to Marymount 
to apply for financial aid. All That's all I remember. And then mm. I swear David did a Hail Mary and was like, I'm going to do all this for you because I don't remember anything other than that piece of paper. And then I showed up at his office mm. and he was like, okay, this is great. We got this. We got this. Look. Okay. So let me, he's going to walk it all through. And to be honest with it, I feel so bad for David, but to be honest, with it, I was like, just so happy, so happy that I was physically in front of him. Like that sure. to me yeah. was like, I can breathe. Now I can mm -hmm. breathe. The other stuff I can sort of figure out like, but he's got me. And like, he walked me through every line. He was like, I know this isn't going to really make sense, but like, this is how much it's going to cost. And mm -hmm. here's the interest rate. Now I, do you know what yeah. that means? And I was like, I could care less how much this cost. Like, I was literally like ready to just be like, where do I sign? And I really was. I was like, I have already taken such a risk at this point to put myself in a situation where, by the way, my family. So I have to say, I come from privilege. I, I want to acknowledge 100 million percent that my family has had the privilege to be able to pay for college for each one of my you know, siblings got that benefit. This was also something else really important to me was that I wanted to be in that I wanted to go this route to say I can do this by myself. Like, it doesn't have to be the option that where my parents choose to pay is where I go. Like if I feel strongly, I'm going to go here. And it'll figure itself out. It was terrifying. But at least I had this, this was mine. I could take this. Yes. This was my mm -hmm. journey. And I remember sitting in his office being like, I get to go. Like, I was nervous because I still was like, I, you know, when you take that loan, it it's like sort of you're excited, whatever you get to go. Back, but it's in there. It's right in the very back. It's in a file cabinet that you're always like, don't forget. Don't forget. You have the loan. So don't forget. Mm -hmm. Don't be crazy. You know, um, I had my mail mailed to my boyfriend's place in Santa Barbara. I mean, I had no mailing address. I had I had all my storage at my aunt's house in Manhattan Beach, California. I thank God I had, you know, they were so sweet to to and then my boyfriend's family store, you know, helped me with food and lodging for the summer. But I was excited initially but terrified to kind of in a like a hesitation. I was sort of like, uh I, I'm doing this. I guess I'm doing this. Yeah. But if it wasn't for David literally just saying, all you have to do from DC is this part, send this to me. Yeah. And by the way, the hardest part was he was like, okay, Brian, this is going to be really, the, this is really going to be hard. We have to get your parents' <laughs> finances proof, you know, because burden of proof, right? Sure, burden of proof, yeah. And I was like, okay, but David, like, we aren't How speaking. do I get that? <laughs> <laughs> like, David, like I told you, like, he's not doing this, right? Like, this is not his journey. And he was like, no, 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 I understand that. But like, we've got to get and I was like, so can I write a letter that literally says that like, my father literally has financially disowned me by, you know, and he was like, I guess you said I see and I you have to fill this in for me because I literally in my mind, I'm like, I heard you say like, that'll work. <laughs> I was like, will it? How will that work? Anyway, I'll stop talking. Uh, that, that's the, the, you know, when we're looking at <clears throat> if we can make a student who would otherwise be dependent, independent. Right. Um, you know, mom and dad's unwillingness to pay or unwillingness to put the information on the form in itself isn't enough. Right. 
Right. But there was all this other stuff that was going on that made it enough. Right. So Got it. there, there was the, you know, you were living on your own. You, you know, we had, we knew where your stuff was. We knew where your mail was going. We knew <clears throat> what the situation was and we had documentation of all of that. Um, and I know, you know, I know there was some family pride that was hurt. Um, I got several angry emails from your dad. Oh, I did um, no wow. idea. The president, the president got several angry emails wow. from your father. Um, <clears throat> I, I was called into the president's office and, and was told, Hey, what did you do over in little financial aid land? And you need to explain this to me because I need to explain it to him. Um, and I went through and I, and I said, Tom, here's, here's where we're at. You know, I understand this person is saying, no, their son lives at home with them. They're they're perfectly happy. Nothing's going on. They've just decided to transfer. But here's the documentation we have. Here's, you know, the, the phone calls that I've had from Brian. Here's the emails that I have, the, the faxes, um, (laughs) Here's where his stuff is. Here's his mailing address. It's not even the same. Even in D.C., it's not the same. <clears throat> and ultimately, you know, Dr. McFadden said to me, if this is the good call to make, this is the call that we make. Wow. <clears throat> and it, it, I think it took him a while to come around to that. Um, but, yeah, the, it, it was it was very difficult, you know, for, for me um, just from the standpoint of, I knew what we were doing was right. Yeah. And I knew it was just a matter of making sure that the folks who needed to know needed to know as well. Um, but yeah, there, there were some angry phone calls and emails. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so, wow. I think I do remember hearing that. I remember hearing that that was happening, but I was, you were so, oh my God, David, you were so just so present you were so kind and calm and you never let me freak out if that information came through like because i don't even think it really reached me i i really i don't think i ever heard any of it i i I don't here we are 20 years later (laughs) (laughs) i think i mean i I think brian you and i talked about it maybe about two years ago yeah um i had mentioned it kind of in passing but yeah it was it was one of those moments where I, I was literally sitting down in the president's office thinking, I don't know if my job's in jeopardy right oh, now. No. <laughs> and I knew ultimately, you know, Dr. McFadden was a good man. And I yeah. knew ultimately it was just a matter of him understanding that the story he was initially hearing wasn't quite right. the story that needed to be told. Right. Wow. Wow. I mean, wow is right. Brian, how did, I mean... I've got chills. How how do you feel hearing this again? Like hearing this perspective, because I think to your point, it's really right. And like you said, David, just now we we don't always have the full story um, on either side, right? Um, and it's important, I think, to tell these stories because yeah. the whole picture is really important. So, Brian, I'm curious, how are you feeling now, sort of revisiting this and hearing um, what David just shared? I mean, it brings up the whole. Um, the whole totality of what was at risk. I mean, um, I, I was putting, I knew, I knew it passed beyond myself when I signed those applications and did, I, I sort of knew it in some sort of like, uh, 
I'm I'm now here, but like I sort of knew that this was not going to be the finish line of like what the repercussions <laughs> were going to be. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the language yeah. or the bandwidth. But I, just as he was bringing that back, like my body registered that yeah. that feeling I felt sort of that's a little fear that I was feeling while signing it all. There was so much that was coming up. It was, how am I going to pay for it? Oh, my God, is my dad not going to like, is he going to try to like stop it? Like, what's going to happen? You know, and again, like my dad was doing what he could do for what he could do. Right. Because I've worked through a lot of that. And you know, as a parent, I understand terrifying your child's going completely on the other side of the country or and you don't want them to make certain choices or or have them be in danger or anything like that. So it comes from a place of love and safety. And I understand that there was just such detriment to what I needed for safety and a community and, and growing and learning and tripping and falling and figuring out things I had those teachers, those advisors, every single person, I cannot tell you, not one person was uh, coming from a place of like unhelpful. They were all helpful. They were all, mm. I remember at one point, just to share the story, because it absolutely broke me down emotionally when I had held everything together, because I was like, I got this, I got this. The second semester of that second year, I could not afford books. They were in 400 500 700 dollars uh i was out it was insanity i was like i had a credit card limit of 500 dollars. i had i was working two jobs on campus for one for uh psychological uh the counseling services and one for residential life and i was working and going to school full-time i still couldn't afford my books I wasn't even mm-hmm. being charged federal income tax because I was making such low, you know, not even state income tax. And the teachers build, I think David also, like, I think a lot of people chipped in and bought my yeah. books. And wow. I first felt so completely guilty. And I, I think I spoke to you, David. I think you were like, absolutely not. Are you going to feel yeah. guilty? Like, this is your education. I, like, you need to remember, this is your future. And I was like, yeah, you're yeah. right. This is my future. But I was in that fear of like, am I going to be able to hold this together? Is something going to take this from me again? You know, it was crazy. Yeah. And I think what's kind of cool is that, you know, at that point, you know, it, it was not uncommon for, you know, my colleagues and I to be like, hey, you know, this this student from Hawaii came and they literally have no winter clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, let's, you know, put together a gift card to Coles and see if we can get them down there. Um, and we just, we just did it and it didn't, we didn't think twice about it. And yeah. same thing with books. The nice thing is that as culture has shifted and the needs have shifted, a lot of colleges and universities now have, food pantries for food insecurities. They have social workers that are able to help students kind of navigate these things and to get onto, you know, CalFresh and, and things like that, where it's, it makes that experience. It takes away some of those social anxiety uh, and those social needs. It takes away that, the fear of those. And it, it takes away our need to be able to, you know, we're spending our money, our personal money to, Mm -hmm. to do those things back then. Um, Which, in a heartbeat, I would do it again. You know, it's not, it, it never even, we never even thought twice about it. It was, hey, Brian needs books or, 
you know, the student needs a coat or, you know, the student is going on their first job interviews and they have no idea what to wear. Let's see how we can help them. Um, But we didn't even think twice about it. And, you know, like you said, we, the worst thing in the world would be for us to make you feel guilty about something like that. (laughs) (laughs) That that was never, that was never the intention and never wanting the recognition. It was, this is what you need to do to be successful. Yeah. Well, and I I also think what's really, I mean, reflecting back on it now, it's interesting, Brian, and, you know, and David, as you mentioned, you know, when you think of educators, you think of advisors, you think of people who invest in the next generation. I think everybody understands that in order to learn, you have to, your brain has to be in a state of not fight or flight, right? You can't be worrying about where am I going to get my next meal? And that's what I think is so beautiful about the generosity that you talked about is it was, it was truly so that people like Brian and other students could learn, right? You're in the classroom. Um, We want to you know, relieve you of the burdens that prevent you from actually experiencing what this place is about, which is about learning and growth. And I do agree, like the the sort of social systems in place, be it food pantries. I remember I was also a residential advisor in my time. And I remember the the joy of when you had international students who couldn't fly home for Thanksgiving, right? Couldn't fly home mm-hmm. for Christmas because it's really expensive and they could not afford it. Um, and you would have portions of, you know, the residences set aside where they could actually kind of move in for the holidays. And we'd have these really small, intimate gatherings and we would do different, um, you know, different foods and different dishes and learn about them. And they would learn. And I, those are some of the most memorable times um, because it's about community, right? I mean, right. this is really about helping people um, not have to live in a state of constant worry and fear. And I think that's just so beautiful about how it was organic at a place, you know, like your, your program and your school. And now there are some systems in place, you know, for, for schools to do that. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to talk about the, the paying of that, that loan, Brian, not to get into (laughs) specifics, but I think it's kind of interesting that here you are, almost two decades later, right? and you're in the financial system. You actually yeah. work for a bank. And so <laughs> Crazy, huh? the irony, right? Here we are, like a person who um, helps people get loans right. Um, right. for their dreams. And um, maybe that's not ironic. Maybe that's, you know, a beautiful reflection of what we're talking about here. I'd love to know what it was like, Brian, to, to, to start paying down that loan and that connection back to because – one thing I've talked to a lot of young people about is um, when you take on something like that, a vehicle, like a loan or whatnot, the amount of emotion that goes into it, you sort of touched on this before, going into it is very, you know, it's all consuming. What's it like on the other side when you pay that down? Do you reflect back to those moments we're talking about now? Do you do you see those images of the classroom and the community? I'm just curious yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, what's really funny about it is when I... Um, so signing the papers is one thing. And then you get a bunch of fury of letters, you know, that is like, okay, just to remind you, you have that just to remind you and everything's very split up. So it's like, how much do I owe? Because there's like, the way we had to do it with the FAFSA is that there's this amount and this amount and this amount. And it's like all separated really weirdly. So you get multiple statements. But everything's there's grants versus loans and all that. Exactly. Stuff. Yeah. And again, like, to David's credit, you know, 
I don't mind going into this because I, I think it's really important for people to understand there's there's certain situations where it's not going to be uh, my situation is going to be the same as everybody's. And I, right. I, you know, I had a community where, again, like the books, there were things where that conversation that David would have had with the president and, you know, the finance plea and all this stuff, he it would have been a community conversation to say, look, he can get a job as a residence advisor and we that can take care of his board. You know, yep. um, we can do this and get him a Pell Grant. We can do that. Like when I saw the number, I was like, I, yeah. I don't even remember if I said this to you, but I, I, I was like, that's not. I mean, maybe I didn't say it was about that bad, but I compared to the tuition was, I mean, the 30 something thousand. I mean, this is a private college, right? So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be sticker shock. But it got to like 9,500 for that, just that year. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, it's still pretty, I mean, that's pretty big for my age, like someone to take that on. By the time the deferment, because you get deferment um, up, you know, to a certain point, and I kept checking in all the time. And then when I got my payment started, it was like, ooh, this is going to be really like, I, but yeah. I, what what my strategy was, and I had learned this through my second college I went to, when I charged too much credit card debt at one point, I got a job and I paid it off mm-hmm. and I threw all the paychecks to pay it off, right? So I did the same thing with my tax refunds. Every time I got a tax refund, I threw it right to my loan. And yeah. You know, it was these types of journey lessons that was like, I need to pay this down because I don't want to constantly think about it. When I got to the last, um, uh, you know, I had a car that I, I sold to pay off the loan. And I'll never forget that feeling when that yeah. I, I was like calling uh, Sally Mae and being like, where's my completion <laughs> letter? Like, they're like, oh, no, we made it. I was like, no, 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 I want it. Can you email it to me? Because I was like, I was ready to frame it. I was ready to be because you have to understand every time I made a payment, I wasn't like, oh, this sucks. I wish I hadn't done this. This was I made a payment and that was worth every penny. Okay. Like I was like, mm-hmm. it was every reminder to me when I made a payment that I did this for me. And no one's going to tell me I did did the right or wrong thing. I know that I had a community that loved me. And I know I had, you know, family had to do what they had to do. I had to do what I had to do. But I did this for myself. And it was that was what my constant reminder was. Every payment was a reminder. This was for me. And I will carry this as a lesson to keep doing these types of things to be strong and live my life. Yeah. And it was it was amazing. To pay. I, I, I wanted to call Dave. <laughs> I don't know if I called you that. I can't remember. But I should have picked up the phone and been like, we did it. OK, this yeah. this is, you know, and I remember even at like graduation time from that first year, it was like, I, I'm going to transfer David We're I'm we're doing this. Like we're doing this. Yeah. I'm staying in school. And it was because of you. Because I would have never, I would have given up on everything had this not happened. It would have been such a detriment to my life. It's, you had so much going against you. And I think even in that second year, I think you you had some like personal issues that came up and, and from my standpoint, I just kept thinking, He's he's got to finish. He's got to finish. We've got to get him to the next step. <laughs> like we we can't yeah. like you know. And then I, I forget if you were. I think you were 
were with us for two and a half years. Yeah. So it was, well, no, two years, two, two years, half, yeah. two years. Yeah. Two years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but it, it was, you know, when we're, when I'm watching your progress and I'm like, you know, the, the things that we do when we have, you know, those special students that come in front of us is, you know, every semester you're looking at the grades. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like, okay, do I need to talk to him? You know, you're, you're checking in with discipline and saying, hey, is there any issues that, we're, you know, I need to pull them aside and say, you know, don't screw this up. We've, we've got you. Right. We can get you there. Um, <clears throat> and those are just the things that you do, you know, because if you needed that extra push, I want to give you that extra push. Right. And, you know, I, I will tell you, getting that payoff letter on your student loans, it doesn't matter what your college experience is. It feels mm-hmm. great when you get mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, I I will be completely honest with you. I just got mine from grad school. Amazing. Um, wow. Through public, through public service loan forgiveness. So Amazing. they wiped out yeah. the rest of mine. I got it uh, about two weeks ago. So I was yes. so excited when I saw that. Yeah. But I was, I was like, you know, so twenty five years yeah. in, in working for nonprofit schools has its advantages, right? Right. Well, and I, and I think that's you kind of took it exactly where I was hoping to go, David. Which is this: you know, we're now in this, and we don't need to debate the policy, but we're in this really interesting time right now, where the mm-hmm. president has put forth the student loan forgiveness program. I was just listening to a podcast the other day. Um, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, it did kind of a recap of it. And it's now in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and there's, uh, I think there's two plaintiffs that are suing because they feel discriminated against by the actual policy. I think one was a student who took private, you know, loans through a private uh, vehicle. The other was maybe um, a Pell Grant or something that didn't allow them to, you know, get the maximum 20K forgiveness. And all of that to say, the whole thing might be struck down um, mm-hmm. or not go forward. So I'm curious, like, you've been doing this for a long time. Are we in just some crazy times or is this just par for the course? We are. <laughs> uh, you know, the the, <clears throat> the public service loan forgiveness, it, it's only been in the last, you know, two to three years, I think, where the first people who could have gotten it forgiven through that program were able to get theirs forgiven. Um it's okay. working well. Um, there's also they're also putting in protections for students who are defrauded by their college, uh, typically oh, for-profit yes. schools, um, where they were promised, you know, you're going to get a hundred thousand dollar paying job right out of college for this, you know, three week course that's going to cost you thirty thousand um, dollars. Right. I think it's unfortunate that where we are right now with the one time loan forgiveness is where we're at. I, I think. You know, we're we're seeing the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. You know, they're they're. I think they're trying to debate not necessarily the policy, but they're trying to figure out if they can if they can say that the plaintiffs actually have a claim. Um, and I I think right. that's the safest way for the court to look at this case versus is the policy justified. Um, you know, and looking at the analysis and looking at what's going on. It's crazy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this loan forgiveness helps so many students who are struggling. And the negative outcome from, you know, right now all student loan payments have been put on pause. The negative outcome once those payments start, especially if we don't have this resolved, is pretty huge and is going to add to 
you know, the financial and economic problems that we're having right now. Um, it's unfortunate. I, I still, I still have hope. Um, um, but I don't know, you know, I, I and I know so many yeah. people who are in that, you know, 10 to $15,000 range who, if this could go through, they would be able to pay off their loans within the next two to three years yep. and be able to do things like buy a house and, you know, feed into the economy a little bit more. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's hard to see where we're going. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, the price of education is not going down no. at all. In fact, it's going right. up. It is. And, you know, tuition goes up on average three and a half percent every year. Very few colleges have, you know, maintained any kind of freeze in tuition. Um, you know, some of the, the moves for free education, I mean, especially in California, you know, if you can go to community college basically for free, um, if you have good grades, you can get the Cal Grant and, you know, with, within certain income limitations, uh, which are fairly high, which is good. Um, and then you're paying for your Cal State near UC for free, you know, so with, with right. state funds. Um, and they're giving you, you know, the federal Pell Grant. If you get that, they're giving that to you to, to help you with your living expenses. So we're kind of lucky in California <clears throat> um, in that we have those programs. Um you know, you look at other states and, you know, you look at the state of education in Florida, that's a whole hot box of crazy that's going on over there. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, with tuition rising and then, you know, governors sticking their nose into into pedagogy and, and content of curriculum, I don't know. I don't know. I saw an article, uh, um, I think it was in Inside Higher Ed today, that was saying that more families are opting not to look at colleges and looking for yeah, yeah. trades and apprenticeships. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're also seeing trends even, even in the state I'm in, you know, that Brian's in as well. I think for the first time in a really long time, um, the number of, and I think they call them unaccounted children in the education system, which basically means as far as I can tell, they just didn't come back. Um, mm -hmm is really quite surprising. Um, and and I don't know if that means they've chosen to go to another school. I don't know if they're homeschooling. I don't know if it's just because they just, you know, they after the pandemic, they were kind of like, hey, let's just let's just not do this. But all of that has a um, snowball effect. Right. And I yeah. think I think we're seeing it in some some of the colleges as well. I've been reading, you know, similar articles about how some students and families are actually suing for the amount of tuition they paid during, you know, semester one of pandemic or semester two of pandemic, right? Because they're like, did we get our worth? I don't necessarily think so. Um, and then, you know, you share you share a public service stuff, which is, that that's my experience too. You know, I joined the military and they paid for grad school. Now, I know that's not for everyone, but when people say, how are you, how, how are you, um, you know, where you're at without having done loans? Yes, as Brian mentioned, we were very fortunate and very privileged. And we had a parent who said he made it a commitment to, that none of his children will have student debt. Um, you know, grad school was different for me in the sense that the military said, we're going to pay for this. Now I gave them 12, 12 years of my life. So like, <laughs> you know, nothing's free. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do know a lot of people who, when they have that moment, like you described, Brian, that final payment, that final mm -hmm. letter, if they do share that, you know, information with me, I say, let's go celebrate. Yes. Like, 
like let's make this a moment. This is not just a thing. It's not just a transaction. Right. Like this is the next stage of your of your dream that much closer. And and it's the follow through and the commitment yep. that people made to it. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of a really fascinating time. Um, yep. And I don't I don't know where it goes. You know, uh, going forward, I just hope personally that there are young people listening who may think to themselves, "Hey, I don't have options." Right. And for them, I'm going to say. There's a Brian out there and there's a David out there. Yep. So for those Brian's out there, find your Davids. For those Davids out there, thank you for finding the Brian's because this is a this is a good news story. This is a story about healing. This is a story about potential. This is a story about dreams. And this is a story about like staying in touch and thanking mm-hmm. those that are doing the hero's work. So for me to you, David, as the big brother of the person we're talking to, thank you. For taking care of my little brother. Well, and it and it was actually so. What's interesting is Marymount came along because my my uncle Mike Dennison was a um, at Loyola High School in Los Angeles. College counselor. He was college counselor, and he was like, "This, I this is an option because this school was known as a two year program to be able to really help people start their education and really give them the space." to be able to find themselves. Um, and thank God that that happened because I don't know where I would have been. And, you know, it does, it to also say it does, there are people, there is a Brian out there, there is a David as well. It's a community. Like what I can say yeah. to everybody, it's just wherever you find community, hold on to it really tight. That's the safety. That's the direction. It, you know, everything else will fall in place. The applications can get filled out, things can get done, but hold to your community. Do not give up on your community that makes you feel safe. That is what really saved me, 100%. David, any last words? Oh, so many last words. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, and and that's the thing, you know, what I always, when when I do, you know, financial aid outreach to families, um, the one thing that I, I always tell families is that, you know, there's the admission folks who are paid really nicely to be your friend to show you how amazing the college is. And there's these, you know, introverts that stay in the office called the financial aid team that never get to go out. And we're all really nice, mm-hmm. but sometimes you have to find us too. <clears throat> and to never be afraid to ask those questions. And I, I think that's important, you know, as, as I've moved on, uh, you know, on and up, I feel like I, I, you know, sometimes I do miss that direct connection to the student. Um, yeah. And yeah. and that's tough for me sometimes, but I know that, you know, I can still do good work in shaping programs and making sure that students like Brian are still being served and that we're making, you know, students a priority, when, especially when we're talking about diversity within a college. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, I, I never, I never take my job for granted, but I also know that you know, I, I don't sit in that spot of, you know, I'm saving each individual student. It, it's <clears throat> it's something that I do and it's something that I enjoy doing. And I've had opportunities to move on from higher ed and I just can't do it. Yeah. I do. I, I enjoy being in, you know, kind of this liberal bubble of education. I enjoy knowing that there's flexibility within that bubble um, that colleges are generally welcoming. Um, And I've been very, 
deliberate in where my career has taken me and making sure that those colleges values align with my own values and that I can I can be a part of that campus and that campus can be a part of me. And so it's not just a job that I go to. Um, I, you know, I, I take it very seriously. And when I, you know, when I see, you know, where we started, when, when I see, you know, the ring on Brian's finger and he's sitting in his own house and it just makes me so happy and so just knowing, you know, the the route this could have taken yeah. if he didn't reach out, the route that this would have taken if I hadn't been the GSA advisor so that I knew what was going on with my students. Um, but then to, to, you know, it's all worth it when I look and see how happy he is and how, you know, where his life has come. And I remember even right after, um, right after Marymount, I think you sent me some of your photography, um, some magazine covers that you were doing for a nonprofit mm-hmm. and just even getting those back and seeing, you know, this great work that he was doing it. This was someone that we sent out in the world to do good and, and to make connections. Um, and that's what it's about. Yeah. Well, Beautifully sad. said, well, um, from me to you, David, thank you for helping, um, our family heal. I mean, there's, there's no, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna understate it. Um, you played a really big part in this young man's life. Um, and I'm honored that Brian, you got to come on here and tell this story. Um, the healing continues. And I agree, David, it is amazing. It is such a great feeling to go and see his beautiful home. Um, and, and, you know, know his husband and, um, the story continues. So I want to thank you both for joining um, and sharing this story. Um, There's a lot of gratitude. Yes. A lot of gratitude. And David. Yes. Thank you, David. So, so much. All of this is because of you. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, Brian. I mean, this is, it's always great to catch up with you and and to see the great things you're doing and Bill for this platform. Um, So much appreciated. And I'm glad that there was some healing in the family and, you know, that's a nonstop process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you both. And I think, I think that's where we'll leave it till next time. (laughs) Till next time.